a doll's secret memories. For a long time, life has treated me like a girl treats her doll, paying me no attention except when playing. I am how I am inside my cell, because I live in a cell where no one else can enter, just me with my countless demands, some of which are impossible, others as easy to fulfil as those of a girl. My life passes like a nun's life, but without suffering, without pain or sadness. That doesn't mean that I am indifferent to the beauties of love or of sweet friendship. I would like to be clear when I recount my life and tell of my heart's sensitive nature. Many people believe that I am a being different from everyone else who lives in this unfashionable world. I hope they can learn to see me rationally without any flirtatiousness. Solitude has made me totally sincere, so what I am writing seems unbelievable to people who live in a closed society. I am independent, free to think and feel as I do without the slightest shame. Some day, perhaps, I will emerge from my secret, happy to imagine other worlds, brighter and bolder ones that would astonish anyone, expressing the depths of my confidence. I am what I want to be for the whole of undisturbed eternity. Nothing belongs to me here in this house. I want to describe its geometry. An enormous hexagonal hall joins the rooms. A hallway leads to each bedroom. I have an altar with saints, a little kitchen with pots, spoons, knives and forks. I live in a world in which water covers the earth. For a week it has been raining without end, and this area of the city is completely flooded. The electricity doesn't work, there isn't any drinking water in the houses, and the floodwaters are filthy. This makes me happy, because nobody can bathe me. The telephones don't work, nor do the gas stoves. You have to resign yourself, says an old woman who feels happy. For her, resignation is the only form of hope. Resign ourselves. What does that word mean? I've heard it in a dream where what they were looking for was never found, and they were saddened because they couldn't find it. I think it's like hope, although spoken of in a different tone of voice, one that reminds me of the strange emphasis with which men spoke in my childhood. Could I have been a child once? I don't have little dresses or little shoes or little hats that would prove that I was a child. And I don't have tiny furniture sets or cars, either. My toy is the computer. Nevertheless, I was a girl, so tiny that nobody could see me. When they didn't look at me, or celebrate my straight blonde hair, or my haircut, or my dress, or my way of speaking, I witnessed a flood. I was sleeping on water, as if on a very soft, almost drinkable waterbed. Lifting my feet, I saw the houses submerged in the liquid. My head raised so I could breathe. Someone shouted in the street, It's an angel! Look at the angel! Someone I can't name because I have learned that people are perverse and may interpret my words saved me from the water where I had been floating for several hours. It was near Olivos, down by the river, where there were willows and blue hydrangeas. The person who saved me carried me in her arms without finding out what boy or girl owned me, because a doll is like a dog and belongs to someone in a very intimate way. She took me to a house below the bluff from which you could see the river. She ran to the bathroom in search of a towel and napkins. She dried my feet with a light blue towel and my hair with a white lace napkin. She took off my dress, ironing it, I think, then put it back on me very carefully. In her arms, I heard her voice telling me, Barbara, your name is Barbara. Don't forget, and you will be mine. Two or three days went by without anybody bothering us. She knew me. I knew her. My name is Barbara, I said to her one day. But what is your name? My name is Andromaca, she said, holding her breath. It's a very odd name, but it has been mine since my baptism, and I hope it will still be odd when I die. You won't ever die, I answered. I would have to die first. So we waited for a spring day to cut flowers and put them in vases around the house. Jasmine, hydrangeas, chrysanthemums, bridal wreath. The names were familiar, and she taught me to recognise flowers and perfumes and colours. She sat down in a chair and told me, 
I am going to cover you in candies and dresses and toys, but don't, but don't tell anyone. Then she kissed me, putting her tongue in my mouth. It was like a freshly cut strawberry. You will sleep with me in my bed, okay? Don't fuss like a baby or close your eyes when I am speaking to you. The first day we took our naps together. It was strange waking up in that house that was so different, in a world full of unknown people and of strange birds and gilded cages. I hope you love me the way I love you, otherwise I'll kill you. She closed her eyes when she spoke these words, just as I opened mine. Don't be afraid, I won't ever kill you, because I am sensible. Take a good look into the depths of my eyes. I looked at her and she at me, but happiness never lasts. Lightning and thunder filled the sky. Something happened that stormy day. The bad weather returned. It was nap time. In her room, as if in a dream, I discovered a doll that was different from all the others. She was dressed like a sultan's wife, moved, closed her eyes, shouted. She was in Andromache's house. She was so beautiful that I didn't dare look at her. And I kissed her, and she me. But Andromache swept her up and rocked her until she fell fast asleep. Do you know what Andromache means? Happiness in marriage, she explained. I protested. But you're not married. I am going to marry right now. But that's not possible, I said. Yes, it is. Here is the ring. The day darkened, and I fainted. I didn't regain consciousness because the room disappeared. Readers will think that I am lying and that Andromache never existed. These words are inside my body. Open me up if you dare. Maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe never. I will throw myself out of this window. She approached the window, opened it, and looked around. Watch me, she said. She jumped and fell into the air. She dissolved like a sugar cube. All that was left was the blue of her eyes, lost in the extraordinary solitude of jealousy. But my life didn't end there. Life goes on without a body, entering plants, smelling the perfume of every flower. Life goes on without, with its odd surprises. It turns into a detective. I went back to Andromache's house at, at night. I snuck into her room. She was hugging the doll that wasn't an odalesque, but a sultan's wife. Both of them were sleeping. A duo of snores held my attention before the thrushes sang. I forced myself to listen to the snores so as to forget my sadness, and felt utterly disenchanted. When the lightning bolts made them visible, I threw myself on the ground to see them better, and when the last bolt of lightning hit the house, I screamed with a dull scream. It seemed we were rising out of the centre of the earth, in the place where all three of us had been struck by lightning, I without a body, the two of them with their bodies full of hope, without any future, without heaven or hell, in the eternity of my consciousness. This is the unplace. My name is Silvina Ocampo. That was my story, translated so generously by the lovely man, Daniel Balderston. I've never met Daniel Balderston. I'm filling in this week for Daniel Erickson, who unfortunately has two ears stuffed full with the dead stuff of bees, and he's getting it taken care of. So today, I, Silvina Ocampo, poet and story and novel writer from Buenos Aires, Argentina, am filling in to what is not the unplaced. We're going to continue with Benedicta Spinoza's Ethics and Karl Marx's Das Kapital. I've met both of them, and neither of them are very nice, and I don't quite see why Daniel is spending so much... Daniel Erickson is spending so much time busying about with them, but I'm just a fill-in, an appendix, something... Necessary when you need it, but never really noticeable. I died in 1993. Daniel was only a year and a half old. And so I do this job tremendously. The appendix to Benedict de Spinoza's Ethics, section one of God, 
starting now. With these demonstrations, I have explained God's nature and properties, that he exists necessarily, that he is unique, that he is and acts from the necessity alone of his nature, that and how he is the free cause of all things, that all things are in God and so depend on him that without him they can neither be nor be conceived, and finally, that all things have been predetermined by God, not from freedom of the will or absolute good pleasure, but from God's absolute nature or infinite power. Further, I have taken care, whenever the occasion arose, to remove prejudices that could prevent my demonstrations from being perceived. But because many prejudices remain that could and can be a great obstacle to men's understanding the connection of things in the way I have explained it, I considered it worthwhile to submit them here to the scrutiny of reason. All the prejudices I here undertake to expose depend on this one, that men commonly suppose that all natural things act, as men do, on account of an end. Indeed, they maintain as certain that God himself directs all things to some certain end, for they say that God has made all things for man, and man that he might worship God. So I shall begin by considering this one prejudice, asking first why most people are satisfied that it is true, and why all are so inclined by nature to embrace it, then I shall show its falsity, and finally how, from this, prejudices have arisen considering good and evil, merit and sin, praise and blame, order and confusion, beauty and ugliness, and other things of this kind. Of course, this is not the place to deduce these things from the nature of the human mind. It will be sufficient here if I take as a foundation what everyone must acknowledge, that all men are born ignorant of the causes of things, and that they all want to seek their own advantage, and are conscious of this appetite. From these assumptions it follows, first, that men think themselves free because they are conscious of their volitions and their appetite, and do not think, even in their dreams, of the causes by which they are disposed to wanting and willing, because they are ignorant of those causes. It follows, second, that men act always on account of an end, namely, on account of their advantage, which they want. Hence, they seek to know only the final causes of what has been done, and when they have heard them, they are satisfied, because they have no reason to doubt further. But if they cannot hear them from another, nothing remains for them but to turn toward themselves and reflect on the ends by which they are un by which they are usually determined to do such things so they necessarily judge the temperament of the other from their own temperament furthermore they find both in themselves and outside themselves many means that are both that that are very helpful in seeking their own advantage for example eyes for seeing teeth for chewing plants and animals for food, the sun for light, the sea for supporting fish, and so with almost all other things whose natural causes they have no reason to doubt. Hence, they consider all natural things as means to their own advantage, and knowing that they had found these means, not provided them for themselves, they had reason to believe that there was someone else who had prepared those means for their use. For after they considered things as means, they could not believe that the things had made themselves but from the means they were accustomed to prepare for themselves, they had to infer that there was a ruler, or a number of rulers of nature, endowed with human freedom, who had taken care of all things for them, and made all things for their use. And since they had never heard anything about the temperament of these rulers, they had to judge it from their own. Hence, they maintained that the gods direct all things for the use of men, in order to bind men to them and be held by men in the highest honour. So it has happened that each of them has thought up from his own temperament different ways of worshipping God, so that God might love him above all the rest, and direct the whole of nature according to the needs of their blind desire and insatiable greed. Thus, this prejudice was changed into superstition and struck deep roots in their minds. This was why each of them strove with great diligence to understand and explain the final causes of all things. But while they sought to show that nature does nothing in vain, i.e. nothing not of use to men, they seem to have shown only that nature and all the gods are as bad as men. See, I ask you, how the matter has turned out. 
Among so many conveniences in nature, they had to find many inconveniences. Storms, earthquakes, diseases and the like. These, they maintain, happen because the gods whom they judge to be of the same nature as themselves are angry on account of wrongs done to them by men or on account of sins committed in their worship. And though their daily experience contradicted this, and though infinitely many examples showed that conveniences and inconveniences happen indiscriminately to the pious and the impious alike, they did not, on that account, give up their long-standing prejudice. It was easier for them to put this among the other unknown things, whose use they were ignorant of, and so remain in the state of ignorance in which they had been born, than to destroy that whole construction and think up a new one. So, they maintained it as certain that the judgments of the gods far surpass man's grasp. This alone, of course, would have caused the truth to be hidden from the human race to eternity, if mathematics, which is concerned not with ends, but only with the essences and properties of figures, had not shown men another standard of truth. And besides mathematics, we can assign other causes also, which it is unnecessary to enumerate here, which were able to bring it about that men, but very few in relation to the whole human race, would notice these common prejudices and be led to the true knowledge of things. With this I have sufficiently explained what I promised in the first place, these why men are so inclined to believe that all things act for an end. Not many words will be required now to show that nature has, has no end set before it, and that all final causes are nothing but human fictions, for I believe I have already sufficiently established it, both by the foundations and causes from which I have shown these prejudices to have had its origin, but also by Proposition 16, Proposition 30, 32, Corollary 1 and Corollary 2, and all those propositions by which I have shown that all things proceed by a certain eternal necessity of nature, and with the greatest perfection. I shall, however, add this. This doctrine concerning the end turns nature completely upside down. For what is really a cause, it considers as an effect, and conversely, what is an effect, it considers as a cause. What is by nature prior, it makes posterior. And finally, what is supreme and most perfect, it makes imperfect. For, to pass over the first two, since they are manifest through themselves, as has been established in Propositions 21 to 23, that effect is most perfect, which is produced immediately by God, and the more something requires several intermediate causes to produce it, the more imperfect it is. But if the things which had, have been produced immediately by God had been made so that God would achieve his end, then the last things, for the sake of which the first would have been made, would be the most excellent of all. Again, this doctrine takes away God's perfection. For if God acts for the sake of an end, he necessarily wants something which he lacks. And though the theologians and metaphysicians distinguish between an end of need and an end of assimilation, they nevertheless confess that God did all things for his own sake, not for the sake of the things to be created. For before creation they can assign nothing except God, for whose sake God would act. And so they are necessarily compelled to confess that God lacked those things for the sake of which he willed to prepare means, and that he desired them. This is clear through itself. Nor ought we here to pass over the fact that the followers of this doctrine, who have wanted to show off their cleverness in assigning the ends of things, have introduced, to prove this doctrine of theirs, a new way of arguing, by reducing things not to the impossible, but to ignorance. This shows that no other way of defending their doctrine was open to them. For example, if a stone has fallen from a roof onto someone's head and killed him, they will show in the following way that the stone fell in order to kill the man. For if it did not fall to that end, God willing it, how could so many circumstances have concurred by chance? For often many circumstances do concur at once. Perhaps you will answer that this, that it happens because the wind was blowing hard and the man was walking that way. But they will persist. Why was the wind blowing hard at that time? Why was the man walking that way at the same time? If you answer again that the wind arose then, because on the preceding day, while the weather was still calm, the sea began to toss, and that the man had been invited by a friend, they will press on, for that there is no end to the questions which can be asked. But why was the sea tossing? Why was the man invited at just that time? And so they will not stop asking for the causes of causes, 
until you take refuge in the will of God, that is, the sanctuary of ignorance. Similarly, when they see the structure of the human body, they are struck by a foolish wonder. And because they do not know the causes of so great an art, they infer that it is constructed not by mechanical, but by divine or supernatural art, and constituted in such a way that one part does not injure another. Hence it happens that one seeks the true causes of miracles and is eager, like an educated man, to understand natural things, not to wonder at them like a fool, is generally considered an impious heretic and denounced as such by those whom the people honour as interpreters of nature and the gods. For they know that if ignorance is taken away, then foolish wonder, the only means they have of arguing and defending their authority, is also taken away. But I leave these things and pass on to what I have decided to treat here in the third place. After men persuaded themselves that everything which happens happens on their account, they have to judge that what is most important in each thing is what is most useful to them and to rate as most excellent all those things by which they were most pleased. Hence, they had to form these notions by which they explain natural things. Good, evil, order, confusion, Warm, cold, beauty, ugliness. And because they think themselves free, these notions have arisen. Praise and blame, sin and merit. The latter I shall explain after I have treated human nature, but the former I shall briefly explain here. Whatever conduces to health and the, good of, and the worship of God, they have called good. But what is contrary to these, evil. And because those who do not understand the nature of things, but only imagine them, affirm nothing concerning things, and take the imagination for the intellect. They firmly believe, in their ignorance of things and of their own nature, that there is an order in things. For when things are so disposed that when they are presented to us through the senses, we can easily imagine them, and so can easily remember them. We say that they are well ordered, but if the opposite is true, we say that they are badly ordered or confused. And since those things we can easily imagine are especially pleasing to us, men prefer order to confusion, as if order were anything in nature more than a relation to our imagination. They also say that God has created all things in order, and so unknowingly attribute imagination to God, unless perhaps they mean that God, to provide for human imagination, has disposed all things so that men can very easily imagine them. Nor will it, perhaps, give them pause that infinitely many things are found which far surpass the imagination, and a great many which confuse it on account of its weakness. But enough of this. The other notions are also nothing but modes of imagining, by which the imagination is variously affected, and yet the ignorant consider them the chief attributes of things, because, as we have already said, they believe all things have been made for their sake, and call the nature of a thing good or evil, sound or rotten, and corrupt, as they are affected by it. For example, if the motion the nerves receive from objects presented through the eyes is conducive to health, the objects by which it is caused are called beautiful. Those which cause a contrary motion are called ugly. Those which move the sense through the nose they call pleasant smelling or stinking through the tongue, sweet or bitter, tasty or tasteless, through touch, hard or soft, rough or smooth, and the like. And finally, those which move the ears are said to produce noise, sound, or harmony. Men have been so mad as to believe that God is pleased by harmony. <laughs> Indeed, there are philosophers who have persuaded themselves that the motions of the heavens produce a harmony. All of these things show sufficiently that each one has judged things according to the disposition of his brain, or rather, has accepted affections of the imagination as things. So it is no wonder, to note this too in passing, that we find so many controversies to have arisen among men, and that they have finally given rise to scepticism. For although human bodies agree in many things, they still differ in very many. And for that reason, what seems good to one seems bad to another. What seems ordered to one seems confused to another. What seems pleasing to one seems displeasing to another, and so on. I pass over the other notions here, both because this is not the place to treat them at length and because everyone has experienced this variability sufficiently for himself. That is why we have such sayings as so many heads, so many attitudes. Everyone finds his own judgment more than enough and there are as many differences of brains as of palates. 
These proverbs show sufficiently that men judge things according to the disposition of their brain and imagine rather than understand them. For if men had understood them, the things would at least convince them all, even if they did not attract them all, as the example of mathematics shows. We see, therefore, that all the notions by which ordinary people are accustomed to explain nature as the only modes of imagining, and do not indicate the nature of anything, only the con constitution of the imagination. And because they have names, as if they were notions of being existing outside the imagination, I call them beings, not of reason, but of imagination. So all the arguments in which people try to use such notions against us can easily be warded off. For many are accustomed to arguing in this way. If all things are followed from the necessity of God's most perfect nature, why are there so many imperfections in nature? Why are things corrupt to the point where they sink? So ugly that they produce nausea. Why is there confusion, evil and sin? As I have just said, those who argue in this way are easily answered. For the perfection of things is to be judged solely from their nature and power. Things are not more or less perfect because they please or offend men's senses, or because they are of use to or are incompatible with human nature. But to those who ask why God did not create all men so that they would be governed by the command of reason, I answer only because he did not lack material to create all things, from the highest degree of perfection to the lowest, or to speak more per properly, because the laws of his nature have been so ample that they sufficed for producing all things which can be convinced by an infinite intellect, as I have demonstrated in Proposition 16. These are the prejudices I undertook to note here. If any of this kind still remain, they can be corrected by anyone with only a little meditation. And so I find no reason to devote more time to these matters, and so on. And next week, Daniel hopefully will be back, and he will continue with the second part of the ethics concerning the nature and origin of the mind. What would that mean? The mind. My God, it has an origin. How spooky. Now, because I'm bored of speaking other people's words, we're going to read another little tiny short story. You know, it's a, a short story because it's very small. <laughs> you know, it's called Compassion. No one noticed the passion that dominated her until after her adolescence. And I, I want to be very clear. My name is Silvina Ocampo. I'm a poet and short story writer from Argentina. I grew up, was born, lived, died in Buenos Aires. I travelled around, of course I did. But it's the best city in the world. And more importantly, it was my home. The trees were there. Everything was there. My mother lived there. My home was there. I died there. Why else? Why? Why? Would I ever leave? And so I wrote a story. It's called Compassion. No one noticed the passion that dominated her until after her adolescence. The desire to inspire compassion. The desire was so strong in her that she voluntarily contracted various diseases and put herself in situations surrounded by severe illness in order to awaken a deep feeling of compassion in those around her. I will try my best to give a brief account of her actions that allowed me to understand her motives. This is how I fell in love with her. I spent summer vacations at a beach, and her tent was near mine, allowing me not only to talk to her and share ocean swims, but also to hand her a towel so she could dry her hair, a mirror so she could brush it, invite her to have a sandwich and take a picture of her completely nude among the tamarisks. Then one brilliant night, perfect for a swim, she returned dishevelled and in a terrible state with blood on her lips, saying that five young men had raped her among the tamarisks. I tried to console her. She was upset with me because I had taken a nude picture of her. Even if nudity was in fashion, she said, the young men weren't used to such permissiveness, and seeing her naked had incited them to rape her. She cried so much that I had to accompany her to the eye doctor the next day. Nobody will want to marry me, she whispered, sobbing. 
But are you a virgin? Yes, even if you could care less, she answered, weeping even more. But today virginity has no importance, I told her. Besides, you could easily recover your virginity with the help of a gynecologist. I would never deceive the man I love, she answered. I fell in love with her because her beauty was so imperious that I couldn't resist her charms. No matter how incomprehensible her feelings and words were to me, I was, there was the fact of her green eyes, her mouth, her angelic profile, her sensitive hands, her ears, all willing to tell the truth. Will I be happy with her someday? I asked myself. Will we have children? Will we live in a house with a garden? She was a rich young woman who lived in a fancy house, but I never thought about her wealth when I imagined marrying her. Nor was any interest in improving my social position part of my desire to marry her. I am poor, but I don't envy people who have more than I do. Leaving poverty behind actually frightened me when we were about to marry. I sleep with my dog, but she didn't like it. I have a canary, but she hates that pet too. I eat raw onions, which disgusts her, and she criticises me for being messy. I prefer to wear the same style of blue-coloured shirt, but she makes me change into a pink one. I don't wear a tie to the movies, but she insists that I wear one. I cut my hair once a month, but she wants me to cut it four times a month. You are a pig, she said once, while I was eating sausage. Not eating sausage seems impossible to me. It's better not to get married if you don't share the same tastes with your spouse. Besides, love can be expressed with the same passion whether you are married or single if the one you love gives herself fully to you. Through a long series of conversations, the most significant aspect of which were the goodbyes, I gradually came to know her. I cannot forget the afternoon during Carnival when she dressed up like a Dutch peasant woman. The flannel outfit was very warm with three skirts, one on top of the other, and two jackets, one of white cotton and the other of velvet. Two braids of yellow wool completed her stylish hair. She sweated so much that she didn't want me to touch her. In the middle of the party, she fainted, falling to the ground like a bolt of cloth. The whites of her eyes showed when she had her eyelids closed. I thought she was dead. With a weak voice, she said, I feel that my life is leaving me. I hear distant voices, as if from one, uh, from, from some other world, and everything looks blurry. It's like the day of the apocalypse that I read about in the Bible. I was surprised that she could utter such a long sentence in the state she was in. I cried in desperation from a feeling of impotence. For an instant, I thought I could see a smile of satisfaction on her face, but I quickly attributed it to the blessedness of dying. I took care of her until five in the morning, giving her drops of giving her drops of coramin and little cups of coffee that I prepared for her in the kitchen, along with cups of verbena tea. Then, as my distress improved, she suddenly she suddenly seemed. Then, as my distress increased, she suddenly seemed to improve. I told her that I loved her with all my heart. Something that I had never told her or felt the need to tell her. Life changed for me. I thought seriously about marriage. How sad this world is, she said, while being dressed in her bridal gown. As she combed her bangs, she tore the veil they had sewn and made everyone cry. It's a bad omen, she exclaimed, picking up some of the orange blossoms that had fallen. We will never be happy, she said, looking into my eyes. Why are you so superstitious, I asked her. Don't you think that only attracts misfortune? If you don't attract it, it will come anyway, she replied, and smiled with the same smile that I had seen with surprise when she saw me weep. After the wedding, among other calamities, a bad fall while ice skating, the loss of a valuable ring, she became ill. She said she was diagnosed with a contagious virus, but she never let me accompany her to the doctor. Her illness was strange as she swayed from the heights of euphoria to the deepest depression, accompanied by nausea and headaches. She was in bed for a week not allowing anyone to open the blinds so that the sun wouldn't disturb the clarity of her vision or ruin the silk curtains. When she finally recovered, she seemed even more lovely and delicate. I took her for a ride around the lakes of Palermo Park. We stopped next to the Andalusian patio where we had ice cream. The passing tourists stared at us. I attributed it to my criminal appearance. Living together turned out to be difficult. We trusted each other. There was a desk where she kept her papers. She didn't mind if I read the letters, which I confess filled me with curiosity. One day I found a little envelope that intrigued me because of its shape and colour. I opened the envelope and read the letter inside it. Dear Baby Jesus, 
Christmas is approaching and I am very sad. I hurt my knee on a piece of glass and the pain is like being in hell. The biggest cut I have is on my knee. To make me feel better from this pain, I would like to have a dollhouse with an ambulance and nurse as well as a first aid kit. I am signing with my own blood. Felicia, Christmas, 1955. How old were you when you wrote this letter? Seven? I didn't write it. My aunt did. But did you sign it? Yes, with my blood. And did baby Jesus bring you everything you asked for? Everything except the ambulance, which cost too much when you added it to the expense of the dollhouse, which was already quite expensive. And that's all you're going to get from me, Sylvina Ocampo. This is Tuesday, October 17th, by which I mean October 24th. I'm still stuck in last week. What can you do? What can you do? Last week was terrible, and I never want to leave it. Today is Tuesday, October 24th, night 2017. I'm still stuck in last century. This is my first day in the 21st century, I have to say. It's terrible. This is a terrible, terrible time to be, and you all should be ashamed of yourselves. I'm looking forward to going back to being dead in about half, well, an hour, maybe. An hour, I will say. First, I have to deal with Karl Marx. He's German... My German accent is terrible. I apologize in advance. I can't really do it, so I'm going to speak in my native Argentinian accent. I give up already. Why should I care? It's just the words. The words. It's already a translation. If you don't speak German, why do you care about a German accent? My God. You people. You 21st century people. You people past the second millennium are so needy. We were just fine in the first millennium. We... When we had our problems, when we had conflict, we didn't whine about it. We didn't say, oh, you should be polite. Oh, you should be nicer to your fellow human being. No, what we did was we threw bombs at each other and destroyed billions of ourselves. And that way we knew whoever made it through was really worth living. And that, it, it brings clarity to your world. It's, all, it's not good. I don't think it's a good thing. It's a better thing, though. That's... That's something people forget. Things were, things were better in the 20th century than they are now. They weren't good. Don't, don't go back there, <laughs> I will say. Just try and find something else. For goodness sake, it's not that hard. There's so many things to be. So many ways the world could be. We didn't find... Well, we found several. None of them were good. But Lord knows, you're so complacent, you... Second millennials, my Christ. Here's some Karl Marx. He's fine. He's not fine. He was a drinker, did you know that? Slept around? Oh, I forgot to plug. This is Daniel Erickson's podcast. Daniel can be found on Twitter at Daniel Webster E. That's not, that's a lie, that's a lie. I forgot, it's Dan Webster E. He put his middle name there and lied about his family name. I don't know if it's something about shame. At Dan Webster E. Webster like the dictionary. E like the letter E. For everybody. Here comes everybody. All at once. Daniel. I don't know what Twitter is. He told me to say this. And also, you can find it on Facebook. This, this podcast. SoundCloud. And iTunes. It's great. Everybody do it. Here's some Karl Marx. Section 2. The twofold character of the labour embodied in commodities. At first sight, a commodity presented itself to us as a complex of two things, use value and exchange value. Later on we saw that also that labour too possesses the same twofold nature, for so far as it finds expression and value, it does not possess the same characteristics that belong to it as a creator of use values. I was the first to point out and to Examine critically this twofold nature of the labour contained in commodities, as this point is the pivot on which a clear comprehension of political economy turns. We must go into more detail. I intimated, this is Sylvina again, I intimated earlier that I had had a wild affair with Karl Marx. To be clear, that only happened in my imagination. I was not happy about it. It did not get me off. It wasn't a good imagination. 
I thought about it, and then I stopped thinking about it. Karl Marx was dead by the time I was a baby. Even, an, even a baby for an instant. And that's fine. I don't really care. I never really read all of his books. He's a terrible prose stylist. He's, very, he, he's decent at getting people angry, and I admire that. I do. I truly do. But, well, you know, there's something sexual about the relationship between a reader and a writer. The writer's dead, the reader's there. Like all sexual relationships, one person is alive and one, one person is caught so far in the past, so far in what they were before, what they hoped for, that, well, they're not really there, you know? And that's nice for the first person, I suppose, except to the extent that they hope that they're having a meaningful collect connection with another human being. But, well... I don't know, I'm not a theorist, I write stories, I'm a poet. Why are you asking me these questions? I made... I, the biggest book I ever was co a contributor to was a book of fabulous stories. Stories of fables, fantastic histories. And that's fine. It's good. I don't know why I'm... I don't know why I'm here. I woke up and there was a note for me. I'm in New York. I always hated this town. It's worse now. There are fewer people here, for one thing. The trains are worse. My lord, the trains are worse. I miss Buenos Aires. I want to go back to bed. But we can continue, I guess, Karl Marx. Let us take the two commodities, such as a coat and ten yards of linen, and let the former be the value of the latter. So that if ten yards of linen equals W, the coat equals two W. The coat is a use value that satisfies a particular want. Its existence is the result of a special sort of productive activity, the nature of which is determined by its aim, mode of operation, subject, means, and result. The labour, whose utility is thus represented by the value and use of its product, or which manifests itself by making its product a use value, we call useful labour. In this connection, we consider only its useful effect. As the coat and the linen are two qualitatively different use values, so also are the two forms of labour that produce them, tailoring and weaving. Were these two objects not qualitatively different, not produced respectively by labour of different quality, they could not stand to each other in the relation of commodities. Coats are not exchanged for coats. One use value is not exchanged for another of the same kind. To all the different varieties of values and use, they correspond to all the different varieties of values and use. They correspond as many different kinds of useful labour, classified according to the order, genus, species, and variety to which they belong in the social division of labour. This division of labour is a necessary condition for the production of commodities, but it does not follow conversely that the production of commodities is a necessary condition for the division of labour. In the primitive Indian community, there is social division of labour without production of commodities. Or, to take an example nearer home, in every factory the labour is divided according to a system. But this division is not brought about by the operatives mutually exchanging their individual products. Only such products can become commodities with regard to each other as a result from different kinds of labour, each kind being carried on independently and for the account of private individuals. To resume, then, in the use-value of each commodity, there is contained useful labour, i.e. productive activity of a definite kind and exercised with a definite aim. Use-values cannot confront each other as commodities unless the useful labour embodied in them is qualitatively different in each of them. In a commodity, the produce of which in general takes the form of commodities, i.e. In, in a community of commodity producers, this qualitative difference between the useful forms of labour that are carried out on, that are carried on independently by individual producers, each on their own account, develops into a complex system, a social division of labour. Anyhow, whether the coat be worn by the tailor or by his customer, in either case it operates as a use value. Nor is the relation between the coat and the labour that produced it altered by the division of labour. Wherever the want of clothing forced them to it, the human race made clothes for thousands of years, without a single man becoming a tailor. 
But coats and linen, like every other element of material wealth that is not the spontaneous produce of nature, must invariably owe their existence to a special productive activity, exercised with a definite aim, an activity that appropriates particular nature-given materials to particular human wants. So far, therefore, as labour is a creator of use value, is useful labour. It is a necessary condition, independent of all forms of society, for the existence of the human race. It is an eternal nature-imposed necessity, without which there can be no material exchanges between man and nature, and therefore no life. The use values, coat, linen, etc., i.e. the bodies of commodities, are combinations of two elements, matter and labour. If we take away the useful labour expended upon them, a material substratum is always left, which is furnished by nature without the help of man. The latter can work only as nature does, that is, by changing the form of matter. Nay, more, in this work of changing the form, he is constantly helped by natural forces. We see, then, that labour is not the only source of material wealth, of use values produced by labour. As William Petty puts it, Labour is its father and the earth its mother. Let us now pass from the commodity considered as a use value to the value of commodities. By our assumption, the coat is worth twice as much as the linen. But this is a mere quantitative difference which, for the present, does not concern us. We bear in mind, however, that if the value of the coat is double that of ten yards of linen, twenty yards of linen must have the same value as one coat. So far as they are values... The coat and the linen are things of a like substance, objective expressions of essentially identical labour. But tailoring and weaving are qualitatively different kinds of labour. There are, however, states of society in which one and the same man does tailoring and weaving alternately, in which case these two forms of labour are mere modifications of the labour of the same individual, and not special and fixed functions of different persons. Just as the coat which our tailor makes one day and the trousers which he makes another day imply... Only a variation in the labour of one and the same individual. Moreover, we see at a glance that only a variation in the labour of one and the same... Uh, we see at a glance that in our capitalist society, a given portion of human labour is, in accordance with the varying demand, at one time supplied in the form of tailoring, as another in the form of weaving. This change may possibly not take place without friction, but take place it must. Productive activity... If we leave out of sight its special form, these the useful character of the labour, is nothing but the expenditure of human labour power. Tailoring and weaving, though qualitatively different productive activities, are each a productive expenditure of human brains, nerves and muscles, and in this sense are human labour. They are but two different modes of expending human labour power. Of course, this labour power, which remains the same under all its modifications, must have attained a certain pitch of development before it can be expended in a multiplicity of modes. But the value of a commodity represents human labour in the abstract, the expenditure of human labour in general. And just as in society, a general or a banker plays a great part, but mere man, on the other hand, a very shabby part. So here with mere human labour... It is the expenditure of simple labour power, i.e. of the labour power which, on an average, apart from any special development, exists in the organism of every ordinary individual. Simple average labour, it is true, varies in character in different countries and at different times, but in a particular society it is given. Skilled labour counts only as simple labour intensified, or rather as Multiplied simple labour, a given quantity of skilled being considered equal to a greater commodity, a greater quantity of simple labour. Experience shows that this reduction is constantly being made. A commodity may be the product of the most skilled labour, but its value, by equating it to the product of simple unskilled labour, represents a different quantity of the latter labour alone. The, stand, the different proportions in which different sorts of labour are reduced to unskilled labour as their standard are established by means are established by a social process that goes on behind the backs of the producers and, consequently, appear to be fixed by custom. For simplicity's sake, we shall henceforth account every kind of labour to be unskilled, simple labour. 
By this we do no, no more than save ourselves the trouble of making the reduction. Just as, therefore, in viewing the coat and linen as values, we abstract from their different use values, so it is with the labour represented by those values. We disregard the difference between its useful forms, weaving and tailoring, as the use values, coat and linen, are combinations of special productive activities with cloth and yarn, while the values, coat and linen, are, on the other hand, mere homogeneous congelations of undifferentiated labour. So the labour embodied in these latter values does not count by virtue of its productive relation to cloth and yarn, but only as being expenditure of human labour power. Tailoring and weaving are necessary factors in the creation of the use values, coat and linen, precisely because these two kinds of labour are of different qualities, but only insofar as abstraction is made from their special qualities, only insofar as both possess the same quality of being human labour, do tailoring and weaving form the substance of the values of the same articles. Coats and linen, however, are not merely values, but values of definite magnitude. And according to our assumption, the coat is worth twice as much as the ten yards of linen. Whence this difference in their values? It is owing to the fact that the linen contains only half as much labour as the coat, and consequently, that in the production of the latter, labour powers must have been expended during twice the time necessary for the production of the former. While, therefore, with reference to use value, the labour contained in a commodity counts only qualitatively, with reference to value it counts only quantitatively, and must first be reduced to human labour pure and simple. In the former case, it is a question of how and what. In the latter, of how much, how long a time. Since the magnitude of the value of a commodity represents only the quantity of labour embodied in it, it follows that all commodities, when taken in certain proportions, must be equal in value. If the productive power of all the different sorts of useful labour required for the production of a coat remains unchanged, the sum of the values of the coats produced increases with their number. If one coat represents X days' labour, two coats represent two X days' labour, and so on. But assume that the duration of the labour necessary for the production of a coat becomes doubled or halved. In the first case, one coat is worth twice as worth as much as two coats were before. In the second case, Two coats are only worth as much as one was before, although in both cases one coat renders the same service as before, and the useful labour embodied in it remains of the same quality. But the quantity of labour spent on its production has altered. An increase in the quantity of use values is an increase of material wealth. With two coats, two men can be clothed. With one coat, only one man. Nevertheless, an increased quantity of material wealth can, may correspond to a simultaneous fall in the magnitude of its value. This antagonistic movement has its origin in the twofold character of labour. Productive power has reference, of course, only to labour of some useful concrete form, the efficacy of any special productive activity during a given time being dependent on its productiveness. Useful labour becomes, therefore, a more or less abundant source of products in proportion to the rise or fall of its productiveness. On the other hand, no change in this productiveness affects the labour represent, represented by value. Since productive power is an attribute of the concrete useful forms of labour, of course it can no longer have any bearing on that labour as soon as we make abstraction from those concrete useful forms. However, then productive power may vary. The same labour, exercised during equal periods of time, always yields equal amounts of value, but it will yield during equal periods of time, different quantities of values in use. More if the productive power rise, fewer if it fall. The same change in productive power, which increases the fruitfulness of labour, and in consequence the quantity of use values produced by that labour, will diminish the total quantity, will, will diminish the total value of this increased quantity of use values, provided such a change shorten the total labour time necessary for their production, and vice versa. On the one hand, all labour is, speaking physiologically, an expenditure of human labour power. 
and in its character of identical abstract human labor, it creates and forms the value of commodities. On the other hand, all labor is the expenditure of human labor power in a special form and with a definite aim. And in this, its character of concrete useful labor, it produces use value. Now it's time for me to go back to bed. The bed where all the trees go home at night. I'm Silvina Ocampo. I've been filling in for Daniel Erickson, who again is being an enormous baby and stuck his fingers in his ears. A child thinking that he can get the blockage out, the blockage that keeps us from hearing the world. I'm surprised, as a dead woman, that this young man, Daniel Erickson, with such a Nordic, Nordic name, did not understand the very lesson of the experience of all Scandinavians, all Nords, or whether they came from Norwegian, Scandinavia, Iceland, Denmark, on their little boats of burning fire. The lesson that says that if you send an overwhelming force into a small and narrow inland inlet, a river, say, a rivulet, and something must expand into the land, into the places where people dwell. History tells us this. Philosophy tells us this. Physiology tells us this. My God, he didn't even just do his fucking doctor until it was too late. But now, Daniel Erickson is being healed. And he shall come back and let me go back to bed. So thank you all for seeing me. Buy my books. I don't know that it will help me at all. Maybe I'll get a couple more flowers on top of where my head used to be. <laughs> but I do think you would enjoy them. I do. Uh, as you seem to be right-thinking individuals. Good attention spans. My God, you paid attention for... Well, it's not quite an hour, but I can't keep it. I write short stories for a living. I did. <laughs> well, I was. I've never seen the purpose of things that last longer than 15 minutes. The most. Theatre, film. Ballet is nice, because no one cares if you fall asleep. They expect it, really. And that can be salutary. Salutarious? I've never been good. I've never been good with the big words. Except that they called the laugh. Oh, God. Latin is terrible. Spinoza? Have you read him in Latin? Don't. I never did. I don't speak Latin. But I assume he is terrible. He wrote in Latin. Did He chose to learn and write in Latin. All of those words. Changing about. I speak Spanish. I'm speaking Spanish right now. We're very good. Two kinds of word. We call it gender, but it's not really. Masculine and feminine. It's just the way that the world works. The way that language works. You... Fit it in and you can flip a coin. If you get it wrong, it's fine. Just get it right the next time. My God, German? German has four kinds of words. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. But, well, it's not for me to say. I can't change anything. All my words are already out in the world. That's how you know who I am. Silvina Ocampo. Daniel Erickson still has many, many words to bring out. I hope he doesn't. It's not a very nice way to be. It makes people bring you up, wake you up, to host a podcast and speak other people's words, to wake them up. And that, that's a failing of solidarity on my part, but I don't have any choice. I was kept here. I, uh, there's some contract law. Again, I don't speak Latin. I don't really care. This is, I'm tired, I'm bored. But it has been nice speaking with you. I hope you're all, I hope you're all very well. And Phil, I, it was raining outside. I, I, I could hear it. I could hear it through the window. I didn't have to go outside. But I hope you, I hope you all were dry. 
That's not true. I hope you were wet for a small period of time and then came into where it was dry. Because then you could be thankful for the dryness as opposed to just going on with your week. Knowing that, not even thinking about how, oh, my hair is dry, my back is dry, my eyes don't have any water in them that shouldn't be there. It's a boring, listless, unenthusiastic way to live. And, and I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Not even you. My name is Silvina Ocampo. You can find this podcast on iTunes. Please do, and here I'm reading again, please do write a response of what you think of this podcast. Either in the comments section, in the review section on iTunes, or on Facebook. Or get in touch with Daniel Erickson at DanWebsterE on Twitter, Webster like the dictionary, Dan like the beginning of Daniel, E, like the letter E. I'm not on Twitter. I don't spend time speaking to people. I have been dead for over 20 years. If you send me a tweet, I will be very angry with you. So, good night. Be well. I hope you have a sleep. <laughs>